America's original and oldest heritage pack company, Duluth Pack, hosts a podcast led by CEO Tom Sega. Real stories with real people who we admire, plus outdoor industry conversations, business discussions, entrepreneurial advice, and more. Now enjoy this week's episode of Leader of the Pack. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Duluth Candy Company. Welcome to the Duluth Candy Company, the sweetest spot on Superior Street, specializing in gourmet popcorn and exquisite handmade chocolates. You will discover the perfect treats and stocking stuffers for all your holiday needs. Duluth Candy Company has double-dipped hot chocolate bombs, holiday truffles, candied popcorn, and unique gift packs. Whether it's for friends, family, co-workers, or clients, we have what you need to make your holidays sweet. Hey, everybody, this is Tom Sega from Duluth Pack, and this is the Duluth Pack Podcast Leader of the Pack. Our special guest today is a true leader in her field. It is Rachel Eggie Gibbs. She is the owner of Eggie Salon Studio in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Rachel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Tom. I'm excited to be here. And you know, it's for us Northern people who talk with a funny accent, <laughs> you definitely don't have an accent at all. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. I will definitely be throwing y'all out there. So don't hold <laughs> to that. There you go. And you know what? We don't talk to a lot of people on the podcast from down South, so you can y'all us all you want. <laughs> so Rachel, let's talk because, you know, we we haven't talked on the podcast to anyone that is in your field being a hairstylist at a therapy hair studio. And so we're going to learn all about that. But before we even get to you and your career that's been so successful, let's talk just more about you growing up and what was your path getting to where it is. So where did you grow up? What was your childhood like? And where did you go to school? Um, so I was actually, I was born in Houston, but moved to Baton, Baton Rouge, Louisiana when I was about five. So I grew up here in Baton Rouge. Um, my childhood was, you know, I, I had, I was one of four. I had a mom who stayed at home and raised us. I had a dad who um, worked at Exxon, retired from there. We grew up in, you know, just an, an average size home. We had to have a job the second we could drive. We could only have a car that cost like $5,000 in the your first car because my dad knew at some point you were going to nick it or wreck it. Um, so we grew up with a lot going on, a lot of chaos, which I loved. And then here in Baton Rouge, I went to uh, St. Joseph's Academy. It's a private Catholic all-girls school here. And then um, after that, I went to college and graduate and went to LSU for my bachelor's in marketing. Well, you know, we've we've been told up here that LSU has just kind of an okay football program there. And look, this year, a kind of okay baseball team winning the national championship. There, there you go. Holy cow. Sure. You guys, you guys are on fire right now. So, so you mentioned something about having to get a job as soon as you got a driver's license. Yes. What was that first job? And why in your family, obviously you're a very driven person, but why in your family was that so important? I think to just build work ethic, right? A lot of kids um, these days, I just, you know, 
are just given a lot of things. And I think it's super important to instill a hard work ethic into your children. And so it's like the fact that I had to, during the summers, had to be at this place at this time and wake up early and had those kind of responsibilities. So my first job was actually at Smoothie King. And I gained 15 pounds because every smoothie I made, I poured the extra in a sample cup and I drank it. I'm like, oh my gosh, there's so much in these. I learned after I weighed 15 pounds heavier, but, um, but yeah, that was my very first job. And then I had different jobs. I kind of like would have one for a year and then wanted to kind of change it, you know, just because I was young and just wanted different jobs or whatever, but I thought it was good that we had to do that. So from those jobs, what were some of your takeaways that you really had, you felt like maybe at the time you weren't learning it, but you look back now and you go, boy, I learned some really good long-term skills doing those jobs at 16, 17 years old. What would some of those skills that you could correlate to uh, all the way forward now? Um, One of the biggest I would say is probably customer service. So Smoothie King, I worked in restaurants, um, did Hollister, so like retail, right? So it, it was always about the customer and giving them the best experience possible, whether you're buying a smoothie, buying a shirt, or you're ordering food. Um, so I think I've carried those, you know, things that I've learned into obviously the industry I'm in is all about customer service and making sure that client has the best experience. So that's definitely something we learned early on. Rachel, uh, I did a little bit of deep diving on you and at 14 years old, you knew that you wanted to be a hairstylist. All right. What gives? Okay. So this started in high school. So um, in school, I always did my friend's hairs for all the dances. So I was doing the hair and makeup for it. And so that's actually where my passion started. And so when I went to graduate, I uh, told my parents, I'm like, okay, I want to go to cosmetology school. And then my dad was like, hold up. He was like, you're going to college, you're getting a degree. And then, you know, you could do whatever you want to do. So I'm so glad he did. But, you know, that's when I went to college. And even in uh, at LSU, I was literally in the dorms cutting people's hair, thinking that I could cut layers. And I would cut those shelf like haircuts that is not balanced at all. But I just pretended I knew what I was doing and I just went with it. But I just had this passion for just like, um, I don't know, when I did the hair for dances, people would just, they would feel so amazing and they would get so excited. And that definitely is where it started. So at LSU then, what did you major in? So I majored in uh, business. In the beginning, it was just general business. And then I ended up loving the marketing side of it. So I ended up um, changing it. And that's what I ended up finishing with a bachelor's in marketing. And, you know, I think that that was, I was always a very, very strong student. I actually loved school. Like I was the student with like 10 different highlighters, color coding everything. Um, So to me, when he was like, you need to go to college, some people just, you know, hate the school aspect of it if they want to go into cosmetology. But I actually enjoyed that side of it for sure. And I think that's partly of what has brought me to where I am today. So, so you actually had a book that you would highlight in, not just, yeah. uh, not just everything on a computer. Oh yeah. No, no. I was like close to a strike, a four zero. I wasn't, but I would like kill myself like over trying to get to that. My highest classes were economics and accounting. Those were like my, I was the top, I was the top student in those classes when I was in that in the year, which is like, I don't know. It's not my industry obviously, but <laughs> Not hey, not a bad foundation if you're going to be a small <laughs> business owner like yourself to have the the foundational true. practices of accounting 
that uh, you're very strong at. It, so, it all circled back around. Oh, boy, I'll tell you. So you graduate from LSU, and then you decide to go to cosmetology school at the Aveda Institute of Houston. Yes. Tell um, us that experience and how that was after getting your four-year degree. It was, it was good. So it's obviously a completely different experience school-wise. But when I moved to Houston, I had interviewed um, for a couple jobs because I wasn't, I, it was like, in event planning, wedding stuff. And so while I was doing the, while I was putting my resume out there, my mom actually, she knew what I really wanted to do. So she went in and put my name in for a tour and I got a call saying like, Hey, we have an appointment set up. And, um, I was so shocked that, cause it was like, Oh my gosh, mom, I didn't even know you did that. She was like, well, I know this is what you want to do, you know? So I show up to the tour and I walk in and I'm like, okay, this is absolutely where I want to be. And so the school is very nice there. Glass windows everywhere, two stories. I loved my teacher. Um, how do I say this? Like if you go into cosmetology school and you have a passion for hair and you have a good work ethic, you really are going to stand out immediately because a lot of people do unfortunately get into this industry because they don't know what else to do. So it, the passion isn't always there. Right. And that's when you have two completely different hairstyles. You have a hobby hairstylist who's just doing it to do it. And then you have a career hairstylist who is driven and has a passion to do this and wants to be successful. So when I was a student, any contact they had any award that could have been given out like I worked to to win that um, award and in doing so I had a lot of opportunities that I had won so like you know when you won awards they would fly you to Vegas for a hair show and like they'd have photo shoots so at, I feel like from the very beginning of my industry I was exposed to kind of how great it can be and the opportunities that are there um, I did Fashion Houston, PBA in Vegas, Product Runway, which, you know, the normal person wouldn't know what any of those are. But if you're in the hair world, you know, those are amazing shows and runway things to be a part of. So um, I, I I did love the school. It's it was it's kind of challenging because it's like, I don't know, it's it's a different type of school. But once I hit the floor and you're learning about the clients and the hair, I, I loved it. Um, and then at the end. Salon owners starting, uh, started approaching me for jobs and I would go and I tour salon, but none of them actually got me excited to start working. I walked in and it was just kind of like slow, quiet on the floor. Then you'd walk into the break room and people would be like chilling in the back, eating their food, being on their phones. And then they bring me into the office and they try to sell me on like what their top stylist makes. And it just was nothing that I envisioned when I set my mind to like, I want to be a hairstylist. So finally I was like, okay, I'm going to just Google the best salon in Houston and I'm going to see what comes up. So I decided to book an appointment to get a haircut so that I could experience it from a client's perspective. And I had no money at the time, right? I'm like right out of cosmetology school. And the cheapest haircut is like $100. And I'm like, okay, this is worth it. Because I'm like, you know, I don't even need a haircut. I'm just doing this to do it. Um, so I walked in and like immediately that's what I envisioned. It was like 16 chair salon. Everyone was super well-dressed. The energy was amazing. People were walking around, moving quick. And I could tell, like I was surrounded in that moment by six figure hairstylists that were very well-respected and you could just tell by the atmosphere. And so I stalked them until they hired me and, um, they finally did. And so when I was being interviewed, I remember I was, um, uh, well, I don't want to get too ahead, but that I did end up at therapy hair studio. 
Can you, before we get into that, because I'm interested, you said I stocked them and it's, I love that because that just shows you're passionate and that you, you have a lot of let's go get it and, and I want this, but let's go back to cosmetology school itself at Aveda Institute in Houston. What, what does a typical day of school go, go through when you're in cosmetology school and, and then being, a, you want to be a hairstylist? So, um, you start, there's different segments, but the first is literally just textbooks. So you're learning cuticle, the cortex, all the science behind there. I feel like that's probably where people who don't like school struggle the most because they're like, really, I just quit school and now I'm here learning about the textbook side. But the first is the textbook, but like you have to learn about the hair before you start doing hair. And then in cosmetology, you, you have 20% of it is skin. So you have to learn the skin and aesthetics and all of that as well. Then you start getting to technical and, um, that's where you learn like the basic of cutting and parting and highlighting and stuff like that. And then the last segment is where you actually get put on. They they have like a little salon floor within the school. The prices are very, very low, but people know that you're coming and you're, um, you know, having a stylist that's in training doing their hair. So that's when they get time to like practice. That was definitely where I made some mistakes because you're, you're with students who are still learning and training. So at the end, so that's where, and then it comes to an end and you take, it's a 15 hour, 1500 hours. So it, it usually takes about a year. If you're a student who goes to school, you know, goes every day, okay. like you're supposed to. So do you have to do so many hours in school of, of actual practicum of working on clients? It could, it might be broken down like that okay. within the program. Um, but my biggest thing is like you, any, anybody who wants to be in this industry, you cannot get out of school and think that, you know, even close to anything to be ready to hit the floor. There is so much learning that needs to be done after even your basic cosmetology school. And that's why like at our salon, we have a, a I, I compare it to like a master's program. It's like you get your bachelor's degree, but you will need a master's, a, a master's degree, a associate program to further your education before you are ready to be on the floor taking clients. Okay. And then to, to round out the schooling, do you have to do so many uh, hours per year of additional training or book work uh, to keep your licensure or how does that work? Sadly, Tom, no. And that I think is what is kind of wrong with our industry because continuing education is so important. So you do have to renew your license every year, but there is nothing keeping tabs on, are you keeping it up, you know, the new trends, the new techniques and um, doing continuing education. So it's not qualified, but like a standard in our salon, it's something that is a must. Okay. So let's talk about 2014. Earlier on, you mentioned that you started stocking a, a studio, not in a bad way, but you wanted to work there so much that you weren't going to, you know, <laughs> you weren't going to listen to no. And that was Therapy Hair Studio, uh, one of the most elite studios in Houston, Texas. Mm -hmm. Talk about getting in there again because it's that was pretty interesting. And then let's talk about you know, the veterans that are were already there and, and did they mentor you or how does that work coming in? 
Yes. So when I did show up for my appointment for the haircut, I brought my resume, of course. So I dropped it off on my way out, you know, just slid it over there just if y'all were hiring. And then I just, you know, I kept following up with phone calls. I think I even went in there one more time. And like looking back, they were they were super busy. Right. So it was like I knew that that responding to me was not their top priority. So that's why I kind of took it upon myself. But I remember finally in that um, interview, I'm like sitting at the table, this young man blow dry his client. He's using this technique that I I've never seen before for volume. And I'm just like amazed in, in how he's just like, he's in the zone, focused on his work. It's like watching an artist just like paint a canvas. And so I'm watching him. And so when I was offered the position, I immediately asked the owners, I said, could I um, learn under this man? I didn't know his name at the time. And so they're like, yes, actually he needs an assistant. So his name was Suleiman Telfa and he had been in the industry for years. And so for about a year, how it works at that salon is I was literally just standing behind him, right? His clients are paying top dollar. And so like he didn't really allow his assistants to touch the client. So I stood behind and I just watched. I had to hand him the correct brush, depending on the hair texture. I had to sweep like the station prepping for the next client. Um, and so I would say this though, like as an assistant, I was the assistant doing all the you know little things, but I tried to make the most out of that time. So I had a journal and I would stand behind him and I would draw out every haircut, like head sheets and how the angles he used when he cut. So then after our day, I would ask like, okay, why did you cut it at this angle? Why did you cut it here? Um, and like clients would think that I was like writing stuff about what they were talking about. And I was like, no, 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 this is just for me for like my learning. And I still have that and it's so cool to go back because I remember drawing it and I had no idea what I was drawing but I knew there was a reason he was doing it and now obviously as an experienced stylist I I can look back and I know exactly what he was doing but he was amazing and he was super tough on me so like there were times I, I'm not a crier ever and there was times like that I remember just being so hard on myself because I felt like I disappointed him. But it was a relationship that he saw such potential that he was not going to be easy on me. And looking back, like, I'm so glad he wasn't because he had such a positive impact on, um, you know, my how I am as a stylist. And so to this day, we still stay in touch. He calls me squirrel. He texted me happy birthday. And he's like, happy birthday. I love you, squirrel. Because I like, I'm also just like, all over the place. Like I can get distracted really easily. <laughs> so he was, he was a blessing for sure. That's, that's awesome. So for two questions back to back. One is how do you get paid in your industry? Cause the first year, if you weren't touching clients, you had to get paid somehow. And then, right. and then my next one of the follow-up is how do you begin gaining clients and how do you get paid then? So Typically, if you're just um, hitting the floor as an assistant or associate, it's, it's going to be an hourly rate. Um, and knowing um, a lot of salons, like I kind of know the hourly rate that it is. And it's not it's not a ton, right? Like we, we start at an hourly rate and then they can earn uh, promotions or they can earn. So they'll start at, I'll, I'll be honest, I don't know. So they start at 10 and then every time they hit a... Um, certain amount of services behind the chair, they get an hour, a dollar raise. Okay. So by the end of their program, they get paid 14 an hour plus all their, their client tips. So right off the bat, the, the year of an associate or an assistant is not easy financially. Like, you know, and especially in today's world, it's like, 
you know, gas prices, everything has gone up. So I, this isn't something sustainable long-term. So you do have to kind of figure out what sacrifices can I make knowing you're seeing the bigger picture of what the potential is when you finally become a stylist, right? Um, and then it's the same thing when you are growing the clientele, like this was kind of at therapy and same how we do it is you're still on an hourly rate uh, during the time you're growing your clientele. And then as soon as you finally get promoted to be a stylist, then you're on that that commission how do you gain a client list so uh, well there's multiple ways so i being in houston i obviously didn't know a ton of people right i knew there were for some people from LSU had who had moved there as well so that's where i started it was like who do i know who can i get in my chair who doesn't like who, who won't ask me questions and just trust me right off the bat. Um, so when I started earning days behind the chair, I would reach out to anyone and everyone who lived there. And, um, you know, I, I assisted that they would get in and then I assisted Sully and some other stylists. And I would always try to get to know their clients because their clients know people, right? So it's like if they left and was like, oh my gosh, Sully has this new assistant and they had levels of pricing. So it's like maybe someone didn't want to pay Sully's prices, but they'd be okay with me as, you know, an assistant. Um, so I took advantage of every single person I met building that relationship because that is how you're going to build, you know, client a clientele so sometimes though i would even approach people in public like at that time i was 23 20 yeah i was in, i was early 20 so i was going out so it's like i would literally go up to someone at a bar or a restaurant and then just sell myself and get super excited about their hair and be like oh my gosh i'm in this training program right now at therapy i would love to do your hair and i'd always have cards on me um but you can do everything you can to market yourself but you have to make sure that they come back and that they love it that they're telling other people. That's going to be the quickest way to build your clientele is people fall in love with you. People fall in love with what you did. They leave there and then they just start telling people. Um, so that was probably the quickest way. And then of course the marketing side of it with like Instagram and stuff, you gotta, you gotta utilize that too. Well, let's jump into that right now because you have a heck of a following and we'll, we'll circle back to that, but you have 14,000, Instagram followers personally, and you have over 10,000 Instagram followers in your salon. Can you give everyone your handle so they can follow you on Instagram, all the different social mediums? Um, so my handle for Instagram is rachel.eggy. Um, it's the same on TikTok. And then the salon is uh, Eggy Salon Studio. Okay. Say that one more time for our listeners. Okay. My Instagram handle is rachel.eggy and that's my TikTok user as well. And then uh, the salon is Eggy Salon Studio. Perfect. And we'll circle back so we can get more people following you and and, awesome. uh, Thank you. and and more people coming to your business. What does a typical day look like when you were working at um, the therapy hair studio in, in Texas. And then we'll move forward to when you started your own business here. Uh, okay. Yeah. When I first started as an assistant, I did anything and everything really that needed to be done for the stylist and the salon, um, mixing color, sweeping, shampooing, handing them brushes, handing them foils. Um, I even like painted some clients nails. Sometimes I would sit down and they, and, you know, offer that inventory. So, the days were definitely very long, but they went by really fast. So um, I, I feel like every day kind of seemed different, which I think that's the fun thing about this industry is like, because you're seeing different people every day, you're talking to different people. Um, but yeah, and then when I started seeing clients, my 
responsibilities kind of shifted. And so I'd get to work, I'd print out my numbers, I'd see what I, the day before, I see what I'm going to, I looked at like what I would be doing that day because I had goals that I had to hit to keep moving forward. Um, so they were fun. I mean, I honestly loved every day that I was there. So Rachel, in October of 2015, you started House of Aggie, where you began mm-hmm. freelance working at Kiki okay. Culture Salon in Baton Rouge. So now you come back home. And what's that all about? Um, okay, well, first off, I like I loved Houston. Looking back, I don't think at the time I really knew how long I was going to be there. Um, but once I started working, gaining this clientele, it was like I just the the vision was in my head and it kept growing and it kept growing. Right. So when I finally, when it was finally placed on my heart, it's like, it is time to come back to Baton Rouge and build what I keep thinking about. Um, so that's what I did. I moved back and I really, I was starting from nothing. Right. So it was like, I guess the biggest thing is I didn't want to start my career and then have to start completely over. So I I wanted to know where did I want to do this? And I knew that I wanted to do it where my family was, my friends were like, I want a lot of kids. So I want them to be with the family that I grew up with. Um, And I really, I did have people saying, you don't need to leave. You don't need to leave. And you, you know, you have, I was in a place where I could have been extremely successful, but I just, I wanted to bring that opportunity here to Baton Rouge. And so you started by freelancing. Uh, Yeah. So I started with freelancing. So the biggest thing was I didn't know the business side of things, right? Like I was so excited starting my own was deaf business. I knew it was going to be fun, but I knew it was going to be a huge learning curve because of course I've never done this before. So I specifically went the route of booth running because I knew that I could learn the business side of things through that. So I started with opening an LLC, creating a name. And at the time the name was House of Eggy. And then from there, figuring out, you know, the target market, what I'm going to price my Myself at what am I going to do as a marketing strategy? Um, finances that's a huge thing when starting a business, like you want to be smart from the beginning. Um, so those are kind of the things I like got in line with when I first moved back. Um, which was interesting because I really I hadn't done it before. Now, you you said you rented a space at a current salon, so they have all the equipment. Or, or how does that work? Yes. Okay. So a booth, so you have two different um, business models in the salon. You have booth running and then you have um, commission. And so a booth running salon is where you literally just pay the um, owner just X amount of dollars for that chair. The chair is there, but then you have to provide um, the color, all your products that you're using, stuff like that. So it's pretty much a place for you to work. You, you have all your own overhead of inventory and stuff like that. Um, you schedule your own clients. So you pretty much are just kind of like your own business within the chair. And how did in that, as you're growing that you're, you're, you're renting a chair, did your social media, were you doing it at that point? And how much effect did your social media have on your client list growing that when you just came in cold back to Baton Rouge? Yeah, so I I started with social media literally from the beginning. And I just recently told my associates this too. I said, do not wait till you are a successful stylist to get on social media. I said, you will grow a following way quicker if you are bringing them along your journey so that they see what you're doing. It's like they, your followers need to see the work that you put in to get to where you, you know, you want to go. So I was on Instagram, like stories. I was, I was working 13 hour days. So I would post a a mirror selfie at the end and be like, until tomorrow 
Tamar. You know, I was, I, my followers knew exactly what I was doing. Um, and so I think that was huge because social media, it's not just to put like information out there. People want to know stories. People want to know the person behind the page. Right. So I just, I do think that that definitely helped me grow as quick as I did. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends and Mike and Jen's Hot Cocoa. Introducing Mike and Jen's Hot Cocoa crafted in Duluth, Minnesota, the hot cocoa capital of the world. With just five simple ingredients, including high quality whole milk powder, it's sure to become a family favorite. Get yours today. Shop at the Duluth Pack store or online at DuluthPack.com. Awesome. And then a short time later in November of 2016, you said, you know what, I guess I'm just going to jump in head over heels. And uh, and you opened the Eggy Salon Studios in Baton Rouge. Gosh, Tom, you say it as if like I could have done it overnight. I wish it was that easy. Um, but yeah, no, it was it was a journey. So I was really excited because when I moved back, I, my, my goal was for five years at year five, I wanted to open a salon. So by this year it was year four and we were eight and I was able to do it. So, um, I ended up to recap on those past years. I was fully booked within two years. At that point in my career, I was working 12, 13 hour days. I was shampooing. I was the, you know, the front desk, I was every, every role and I was booked just like back to back and I could not do anything else. And I knew I was at a cap. So I was like, this is my time now to start expanding. So I moved into a salon suite um, where it's like a little larger of a space. It's your own little space, right? And it only had two chairs. And at the time I started the process to build this new salon and people would be like, oh, like, are you going to have a team? How many people is it going to be? And I had just hired my first assistant and I was like, you know, it's probably just going to be me and her, which is fine. We'll just, you know, see how it goes. Well, in that space, I grew from one to 10. So 2019 was my first hire. And then within a year, we were at 10 employees. So that was by 2020 when we opened up. Um, and through that, I mean, we had COVID, right? So we were shut down and then we came back into the suites and they said, you could only have four people in them. And I'm like, well, we have like 15 at a time. So like, that's going to be a problem, you know? So, but as an owner, like they're my responsibility now, I wasn't going to let them down. So we figured out ways to make it work and we did. So 2020, I feel like was an amazing year because I had a, a team of, um, amazing girls that that stuck with me through all of that. And then our clients, like they were so patient with us. Like, you don't understand. We were crammed in this little space with two actual salon chairs. And then we would like whip out iron chairs and I would go to like home goods and buy mirrors to create new stations. And these people would be like waiting in the hallway. And they were so patient because they knew what I was working towards and they wanted to be a part of it when that time came. So 2020, November time, the time came and, you know, that's, it's a whole nother, um, having like an actual location versus being freelance is completely different, right? So like you have an actual salon, so you have a physical location, um, which I was able to build up from ground up. So the the design is what I envisioned, the places, I love it. Um, And then you need a team. You're not by yourself anymore. So you're not, it's like you're responsible for hiring, you're responsible for managing, So a lot more work goes into it. And then you have the stuff that's not so fun, the permits, the licensing, you know, um, and then the overhead costs are obviously a lot more when you have a salon versus just yourself. You have the rent, utilities, insurance, equipment, more inventory, um, you know, the maintenance. So it's definitely 
an adjustment. It was an adjustment. Question would be, is your model that these are your employees or is your model that you are selling chairs or renting chairs to them as you have uh, done it previously? Yes. Yeah, so um, I knew from the beginning I wanted to do a commission salon. And the biggest reason why was because I wanted them to to be employees so that I could create a team and a team that I knew I could invest myself in to see them grow. When you're a booth rental salon, it's like as an owner, you know, it you really aren't going to spend time investing each one individually when they're just paying you rent for their chair, right? You want to help grow their individual business when they're working for your salon. Um, so the biggest thing with that commission, and I'm going to say this in case someone is trying to get in this industry, commission has a negative connotation of people like being taken when you're on commission, right? You don't get all of your services, but what I've had to educate my team on is a salon may take, let's just say 50%, maybe it's 50, 50, right? A salon is not the owner of the salon is not sitting on the other 50% of your services that that 50% is going to paying the front desk, paying for the, the rent of this entire place, paying for the utilities, paying for our marketing strategy that we spend $80,000 a year on. It's like those, that is where those other dollars come from. And what a lot of people don't know is a salon profits, maybe 7%, maybe on the all the services. So when you divide that amongst your team, you're really making like maybe 1% per person, which is not a lot. If someone's like, crushing a service, like the salon's not keeping a lot of it. It's product sales is where a salon's going to make their profit margin. So you have to educate your salon people because if you don't, they will get into this mindset of like, well, I'm going to go rent uh, a chair down the road so I can make a hundred percent. And it's like, you're not because you have taxes, you have insurance, you have to pay for your own product stuff and inventory. So I did build a business model to where they do make their commission, but because our price point is so high and our average ticket is so high that they're still able to make, you know, their six figures within a couple of years of working here. So that was something that um, I wanted to, create so that it could be a commission salon, but these people still went home thinking like, okay, I didn't get robbed. What is, if you have an expertise at your salon, Rachel, is, are you known for one type of thing or are you full service? We're definitely full service, but I would say we uh, do a ton of coloring. So foilage, balayage, blonding, and then hand-tied extensions, but we do everything. You just, to me, as a guy, you just spoke a foreign language, but I think, like our listeners, I think our listeners would fully understand. <laughs> I love it. So in your career, everyone has to have someone who inspires them. Who do you have who inspires you in your career? Okay. So I'm not going to lie. My inspo, he's not a salon owner. He's just an entrepreneur. Like I do see myself as a salon owner, but I really do see myself as an entrepreneur because I'm just always looking for the next thing, right? Whether it's salons or a product line or whatever. So Tillman Fertitta is actually one of the like biggest people who inspires me. Have you heard of him? I have not. Please okay. So, um, well, he's just, he's a, he's a amazing entrepreneur. He owns like the Houston Rockets. He owns Landry restaurants, which is probably like Southern. This is all probably like stuff in the South. He owns hotels all over. So, um, 
I discovered him years and years ago. I stayed at this hotel in Houston. It was called the Post Oak Hotel. And it was a nice hotel. It's like seven, 800 a night. And everything about it was just an awesome experience. And so anytime I had that experience, I always ask, who is the owner and why did they build this? Why did, what's the why behind this? Because there's always a why, right? Um, and so sure enough, they tell me his name, Tillman Fertitta, and he wanted to contribute to the growth and development of Houston. So he knew that there were people out there that wanted to pay for a luxurious hotel when they came and stayed in Houston. And there weren't many at all in there. So anyways, I, I just, I started following him. He wrote a book, Shut Up and Listen. Um, I read that. That was very good if you are a business owner. So he's just always thinking outside of the box. And then the biggest thing that I love about him is um, how involved he is with philanthropy. Like he gives back millions of dollars a year to charitable causes because it's like, I think that's really important when you get to a point, not even when you are successful, like you should always be giving back. But when you get to that point of success, it's like you have stuff to give back. Like you, you want to give back to the community that got you to where you were today. And I think he sees that he, he has always seen that. That's awesome. What a, what a great mentor to have. Uh, one of the things you had mentioned is because you're obviously a for-profit business and that's not a bad word to say, is that you not only do the the styling, but Rachel, you also sell products. Tell us a little bit about products you sell and, and how does the salon make their money off that? And how does your ordering and inventory process go with all of that? Um, one of the lines I carried because I knew what services I did a lot from the beginning. I was doing photo shoots. I was doing weddings. So what is going to be the best line for editorial work, longevity of a, a style? So I went with one, Ke Kevin Murphy. And then Karastas, it was, I wanted to be a higher end salon, right? So you need to carry a luxurious line, high quality. And that's going to be my Karastas, which sells itself. Clients love that. And then working with um, the cancer patients recently, we wanted we want a natural line. Um, so we've been working with what's called Euphora, and we have relationships with all of the um, all of the reps. But I will say Euphora when you're you're working with smaller lines, like Euphora is a smaller line. It's not something that's um, all over in all salons. Okay, you get more of a personal relationship with the. Um, reps because you know at some point you can't have that intimate relationship with with the product reps and distributors maybe the reps but not the distributors and i find the distributors know the most when it comes to business like you want a rep that can bring something to the table business wise right um so that's kind of where we found you for is that the this was actually um, two people that became distributors of this line and they literally were so persistent with me for four years. They would come in and I would shut them down and I would shut them down and I would shut them down. And finally, I, I started giving them time and I just over time built a relationship with them and they were bringing you know, something other than just products to the table. So I started working with them. But I will say when you are looking for product lines, that is something I would would look for um, to be able to get because there's always going to be things that come up that you'll have questions about when you're running, you know, a business in a salon. So when it comes to ordering, there's a lot of different systems to do it, but inventory is a huge, I mean, it is a huge part of your business and it is the easiest expense that can get out of control that can bring down your profit margin. I have found that like, you know, you should, you should budget, um, 
like seven to eight percent for your back bar and and salons will not even keep track and it will just be like piling 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 and they'll spend 15 20 percent of their revenue on back bar and it's like okay you're overspending on products that are not even being used so it's those are the things that you have to be really um cautious with with retail and back bar um what else did you ask me about products well i just uh, it was about you know, and you met you. You actually answered it, and that is about what you, how you order, and and how you uh, inventory, and and mm -hmm. you just really answered both of those. Uh, my next question would be: talk us a little bit about misconceptions in your industry in in beauty and cosmetology. Say the biggest misconception is that being a cosmetologist isn't a serious career. You know, people think it's just a hobby. It doesn't take a lot of skill or education. And this is one of my biggest passions and one of the reasons why I wanted to open a salon. So to me, this is such an, a rewarding industry. It's like you, the beauty service may not be as essential to some people as like healthcare, basic necessities, but they play a significant role in just enhancing the well-being uh, and the self-esteem and the mental health of the clients that sit in your chair. It's like every day as a hair size, you have a chance to make someone feel good about themselves and to give them confidence. And that is powerful. So I find when someone doesn't want to get into this industry because they have people saying like, oh, you're just going to do hair or you can't really make a living doing it. It, it kills me because it, it, it's just like, I, I quickly saw how successful you can be when I started behind the chair. And so it's like, I wanted to create a atmosphere that if people have this passion, come and do it, do what you love, but just know that you still will be able to be financially successful, build a life for yourself um, and not, and like not being a slave behind the chair. So in our industry, there's like this, thing about your whole life. You have to work evenings, weekends, and you have to work 10 to 11 hour days. And it's like, no, you don't. We, we've, we've built the, the industry is shifting, evolving to 30 hours is a full time, which I don't agree with. So 30 hours full time. And we're open. Our, the salon is open 12 hours a, um, a day because we ran out of chairs in the first couple of years, but it, it being open allows us to work in shifts from eight to two and two to eight. So this is something I learned from it's what's called the summit community. And that was a lot. I mean, thank goodness I learned that from them because I would have had to stop growing literally a year ago um, because I didn't have any chairs left. So when you do that, though, it, it gives your stylist a balance of life, right? They're not 10 hours behind the chair, literally six, and then they have half of their day. Um, but teaching them how to book properly, pricing themselves, valuing them as a hairstylist, that's where you're still and working smarter, not harder. That's where you're going to learn to still be successful, but you don't have to like, grind and kill yourself doing it until you're 50 years old. Hey, be careful about that age thing there. 50 is a pretty young age when you get where I am. Yes, it is. That's a, look, I will say this. 40, you better not be grinding 10 hours behind the chair even. Dude, oh, I'm 32. Boy. I have problems. <laughs> I'll tell you what. I wish I uh, had half the energy I had at 32. Rachel, what advice at this point would you have for somebody who's seeking a career similar to yours? Um. As a hairstylist, I would say absolutely do it. All I would say is go to find a good school or find any school, graduate school knowing you have a lot to learn, find an amazing mentor, someone that you can learn from and be patient in that process. Because I think that was my biggest struggle is as soon as I got there, I was like, no, I'm ready. I can do it. I can do it. And it's like, 
You're not, you're not. You just have to wait because that year that you'll learn after school is going to bring your career to the next level if you can be patient and make the most of that time instead of rushing through it. Just know this is where you are. This is the chapter you're in and how can I get the most out of it? Rachel, how do you, as a mom of two young babies, how do you juggle the, the life the life as a mom and the life as a business owner? Uh, it's funny. I actually just did a post on Instagram about this, about um, my virtual assistant. Um, but I, the, right off the bat, the answer is delegating. So I have delegated, learned to delegate tasks both at home and within my business. And you have to learn how to do that whenever you can. Like at the salon, I have a manager. She does so much that I used to do, has taken so much off my plate. I have a virtual assistant that actually lives in Canada. So she's like in a completely different time zone, but I delegate like little nitty gritty stuff that I know that I have to like get done, whether that's personal or business. Then I have a, a personal assistant that can like run errands for me when I don't have time. And then we do have help with the kids at home during the day. So it's like, I I, I can't do it all. And if I did try to do it all, I would be bad at, at, at everything because I know that I wouldn't be able to be giving what I should to that part of my life. So I would definitely say delegating. Uh, communicating and setting boundaries. So like the salon knows when I get home, I usually get home around four. And after that, it's like, do not call or text me. You probably won't even be able to reach me because that's my time with my kids. My husband is home. It's like, we need to eat dinner. We need to get them ready for bed. So, you know, setting that boundary from the beginning of like, hey guys, if y'all need something at this time, unless it's an absolute emergency, just call the man, me, me, my manager, and she'll take care of it. So that's been huge. And then I would say taking care of myself. Um, I think a there is this, you know, mindset that when people see you do things for yourself, it it's like selfish. And I think that if you are not taking care of yourself, you cannot be the best version for everybody else. Right. So it doesn't matter what it is, whether it's working out or getting your nails done, or I don't know, going to grab drinks with a friend every now and then going on a date with a husband. It's like, you need to do something for yourself every now and then to make sure that you are good. And then you can be better for everybody else. Oh, that is, that's, you know, I asked earlier about advice, but you two questions in a row, you gave just incredible advice. Well, thank you. So now let's talk about the best dress ball and your philanthropic uh, duties that you have taken on with the American Cancer Society. In 2022, last year, you were part of a fundraiser for the American okay. Cancer Society where you had your head shaved in front of hundreds of people. This is near and dear to yes. me because I have also done the same. So tell me your experience. Okay. Um, so in January of 2020 or 2022, they asked me to be a part of this. And at first, so what Best Dress is, it's like 10 women are chosen, 10 men, and you walk down a runway and it's like kind of a whole show after an auction. So at first I was really hesitant to say yes, because personally, I never lost someone to cancer. I've known obviously people, but within like my family, I hadn't. So I like struggled with whether I was going to accept it or not. And then literally I was in the bath one day and it was kind of placed on my heart. This is the second time in my life when I moved back to Houston and I mean to Baton Rouge. And then this time where it was like, you need to shave your head. It's just this feeling I got. And the whole time I'm arguing with myself because I'm like, 
why would I shave my head? Because all of my tutorials and all of my social media platforms are using my hair to help people with tips. So if I lost, you know, if I shave it, I don't have hair to, to do that. So for three months, I didn't tell anybody, not even my husband. And then one night we went to dinner with some friends and we're driving home. And I was like, okay, babe, I got to tell you something. And he was like, what? And I was like, I don't know why, but like, it's been placed on my heart that I need to shave my head at this event. And so he looked at me with no hesitation and he was like, yes, he's like, you have to do it. And I was like, okay, so maybe I do need to do it. And so we kept started talking like why, why this would be placed on my heart. So then I got pregnant and I was like, no, I am not getting pregnant. I'm not going to like grow these nine months, have no hair. I was like, I can't do that. And then there was a cancer center, Mary Bird Perkins contacted our salon, asked if we wanted to start a partnership. And it would be a partnership to where uh, they would send women post chemo and we would do, do their um, first haircut and donate it. And so I was like, absolutely. But in that moment, I was like, okay, this is the second time God is pushing me to do something. And he is saying, this is what you need to do. And so in that moment, I realized if I shave my head, because here we are helping all these women post chemo, I can actually help them through every phase of grow out because it is so challenging. I can't even, I've created so many videos already because it, if you just grow your hair out, you're going to get a mullet. So it's like, my goal was to find a cute way to style every single month, every single month of uh, grow out to where it was cute, but you aren't backtracking any of the grow out, if that makes sense. So it's like women were coming back with different texture hair. They didn't know, you know, what products to use, how to style it when to cut it. So then I, I it sh my mind shifted. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm literally supposed to just use my platforms to help women who are going through. And it has been unbelievable on TikTok. So I have about 57,000 followers on TikTok. So that has brought a lot of new followers to Instagram. And I'm working with women all over the world, like an, someone from Australia, someone from Belize, mostly in the States, but hearing from people all over has been amazing. So now it's gotten to that point where people just, I do my videos, but people will just send me pictures of what phase they're in. And then I just send them all the old videos that I took during that phase. And it tells them exactly like what to do. Wow. I mean, you know, I think about it, well, tell us the process. So you went through and then you're up on oh. stage somewhere and you're going to get, part. I mean, you're number one, you're a woman, right? So your hair is a lot more important than yeah. it is for, for us guys. And you have beautiful hair and, and now you're going to have it all shaved. So, so yeah. So you, so the event it's, it was 2000 people. Okay. And you're walking down the stage and music's playing. And so typically you're just, you do a dance and then you go back and you're off. So I was paired at, coincidentally with an oncologist doctor. He was an oncologist and, um, he was going to be the one to shave it. So I reached out to him a week before the event. No one still had known. I told him what I wanted to do. I was like, I think it would be very powerful if I shave my head, people see so that I can continue to, you know, do this journey afterwards. So I met with him and he goes, uh, my original plan was to shave it and then to wear a wig on stage and then take off the wig. He had the idea of actually shaving it on stage because he thought that was going to be more powerful for people to see because there had been people with loved ones who had to go through it. So I was like, okay, so we, we, you know, we had it planned and then, um, the day before is when we told the director of the show, no one else knew still. So it was the director and then the person like guiding us. So we're about to walk on stage. And one, I always thought I was gonna be somewhat tipsy because at an event like this, you're just like, you know, you're at a party, you're, you're at an event. Well, being three months pregnant, I was not tipsy. 
everything. So I'm like, here I am, like sober. And so I'm about to walk down the aisle. And um, the Carrie, the girl who was running it, was like, are you nervous? And I was like, honestly, I'm so at peace with what um, I'm about to do. I'm more nervous about my dance moves and what they're going to look like on this dance floor sober. So anyways, we start walking and we're dancing. And so I really thought I was going to be strong, but I, I got halfway through and we were supposed to make these like V's and um, go down one side. And I couldn't, I like started thinking what was about to happen. And I like my chin started quivering. I was like shaking. So I just like worked my way back to the middle and just kind of like dance in my place while Sanjay did his dance move. And so then finally there was um, a song shift. And so we held up a sign saying that like, this is in honor of all the strength of the men and women who have gone through and battled cancer. Uh, he did it like, you know, right on stage. So it was, it was amazing. I'm so glad that I was sober because I can vividly remember every face surrounding that stage and just the tears and the emotions that were, you know, that were happening. Um, and I don't, I, it's like, I don't know. It was, I was so emotional. I didn't even realize. So I, you could, when you watch the video, you can tell I was definitely holding back tears and he was, he was there like saying supportive things. And then like my husband was literally uh, like on the side of the stage and I look over and it was like half shaved and he's like, you're beautiful. And I'm like, oh my God. Okay. And so, but I, I, you know, I tried to stay as strong as I could. Um, but yes, it was, it was, it was neat. It really was. And I don't think I realized like they had shut down the auction and then, someone called and told me later that um after the auction was closed that happened and there were seventy thousand dollars more of donations that came in and people just going up saying i want to donate and i think what it came down to is just reminding all those people why we're here in the first place because yes it is a it is a uh, event and a fundraiser for cancer but essentially it becomes a party and it's you know people are there in nice dresses and they're drinking and they're having fun and it was just like 10 minutes of just like, no, this, this y'all, this is why we're here. So, and then, it was, it, and then it grew back and then it grew back. Well, look, I'm like a year out. So I still have about 10 more months to go before it's like back to what it was, but we'll get there. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. Um, just to interject a little bit is in 2011, I did the exact same thing for, for cancer um, at a trade show in front of thousands of people. And I would do it again in a minute is the only thing I can say. And for me, I had lost an uncle to cancer. I mean, other family members earlier, but an uncle that I was close to and, and uh, kind of did it in honor of him to not under realize at that time, a year and a half later, my dad would be diagnosed with cancer. and We'd lose him nine months oh later. Gosh. So for me, oh. it was very, it, it meant a lot later on that, yeah. you know what, I did it and I did it for the right reasons, not knowing what was coming in the future. So pretty cool. And uh, oh. I got to give you a high five for that because you, for you a woman too. to do that and, uh, <laughs> On the way home, it was very cold up here. I get off the airplane and it's like 25 below zero in the middle of January and uh, and actually met uh, uh, Joan Jett in the jetway. And oh, yeah. uh, she she looked up at me and she goes, your head must be freezing. <laughs> I'm just bald. You, you can feel everything when you don't have it. You certainly can. So, Rachel, let's let's get off the business thing. We're going to go to a segment of the podcast. And it's just a couple real rapid fire questions called the okay. packed question segment. So we can get to know you a little bit. What's your Love favorite it. movie? Uh, Armageddon. It's a classic. It makes me cry every time at the very end. I love it. Where is your favorite place that you have ever traveled? 
um, Iceland. So my husband and I went there a few years ago and it was awesome. If you like to just kind of like be adventurous and hike in caves, it was like one second we're surrounded by green hills. And then the next we're surrounded by hundreds of ice glaciers. It's like every area looked and made you feel like you're in a different, a different place. So that was really cool. That is really cool. Rachel, what is your biggest fear? Oh gosh. Someone asked me this the other day and I didn't know. Um, I, I, on a serious level, I like losing someone you're like really close to. You gave some great advice earlier, uh, a couple different times, but I want to know, and our listeners want to know what is the best piece of life advice you have ever received? Um, from a business owner, I'm going to say, and I said it earlier, but this literally set my mindset this allowed me to see the bigger picture in the beginning. And it was every minute you're working in your business, you can't, you're losing a minute that you could be working on it. So if you are an entrepreneur and you have this vision that you want to make, make come to life, if you are currently that person who is grinding away, whatever business it is, creating all of the revenue, you are probably a slave to that business at that time, right? Because it can't profit without you in it. You have to start making milestones and goals of how to set yourself out of that so that you can focus on the bigger picture and then empower others to keep the business going. Great advice, Rachel. And folks, today we've been interviewing Rachel Eggie Gibbs, the owner of Eggie Salon Studio in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And Rachel, give us those handles again so people can follow you on TikTok, on Instagram, on okay. Facebook, all of those. Um, yes, my Instagram and TikTok handle is going to be Rachel.Eggie, E-G-G-I-E is the last name. And then my salon page is Eggie underscore Salon Studio. Rachel, thanks so much for being here today. You really enlightened us on an industry. I can tell you this old guy <laughs> certainly didn't know about. Um, and I think a lot of people who you gave great advice to people who may want to get into your industry in the future. So thank you so much for giving everyone that advice, as well as being here for all of us today. Thank you, Tom. Appreciate it much. And folks, until next time. Unplug from the indoors and recharge in the outdoors. Thank you for listening to another episode of Leader of the Pack. Don't forget to rate this podcast. And we would certainly be grateful if you'd give us five stars. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Follow Duluth Pack on social media at Duluth Pack and shop online at DuluthPack.com. Don't forget to support American jobs and buy American made.